Welcome to Rerouting the City with Applied Wayfinding, a spatial experience design practice that makes complex spaces legible. Rerouting the City is a new three-part podcast series that navigates how we move around our cities today. Each episode, we invite an expert speaker from across neuroscience, academia and city planning for a conversation with a member of Applied's team to discuss the new research and technological developments that could help reroute our urban spaces to be more accessible and enjoyable for all their users. Hello and welcome to Rerouting the City, the new rules of the road. My name is India and I'm the deputy editor of Disenio, the Journal of Design. And I'm joined today by Tim Fendley, who is the founder, CEO and creative director of Spatial Experience Design Practice Applied, and Julia Thrift, who is the director of Healthy Placemaking at the UK's Town and Country Planning Association. And Julia is an expert in the connections between how the design of the built environment impacts the lives and well-being of the people who live and move around them. Tim and Julia will be discussing how navigating modern cities has become increasingly complex with competing safety and welfare issues around who gets to use our roads and streets. Pedestrians, cyclists and cars all compete to share space. How can we design a system that allows for everyone to harmoniously share? And can we chart a code of conduct that sets out new expectations for how we should behave on or around our roads? Tim and Julia, hello. Hi. Hello. So first of all, I'd be really interested to know what your preferred method of transport is for moving around the city. And do you encounter any barriers or challenges there? I'm definitely a walker. Um, I love finding out about a city, especially a new city. And I do that by walking and taking it in kind of slowly and gently. Um, I mean, I've, I do some cycling. I've been around on a motorbike. I've tried everything, um, but walking's my favourite. And I agree, I like walking much more than I used to. I find nowadays I, I'll walk to meetings or to see friends far further than I used to walk in the past. A lot of it's around, um, I don't know, maybe it's habit or culture or whatever, but journeys that I would have um, got on a train or a tube to do, I'll, I'll now happily walk. I have had some tricky experiences and it's mostly been when I've gone somewhere new and I've looked on a map, probably on my phone, and I thought, okay, I can get off the train here and I can walk to wherever I'm going and I'll go down that road because it seems quite direct. But what the map doesn't tell you is what it's like to walk down that road. And um, it could be really nice with trees and uh, lots of people around and quite friendly looking, or you can suddenly find yourself in some desolate, bleak place with litter and nobody else is there and you suddenly think, what am I doing here? I actually have a... A similar experience, um, Julia. Um, I remember I was in New York for a meeting. Um, I got up really early and it was a lovely morning. And I thought, Do you know what? I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk to this meeting because I'm just going to find, see the whole of the city. And um, I looked at it and it was about 11, 12 blocks. And I thought, Well, I'll give myself half an hour. I Within about three blocks, it, about 20 minutes had gone and I'm like I just did not understand the scale of the place and I got it completely wrong I'd looked at the map and thought yeah it's walkable and it wasn't and I immediately looked around for a yellow cab to try and make sure I wasn't late for the meeting so just understanding distances is kind of like you can be a bit um, you can get it wrong sometimes 
And that idea about a, a space or a route feeling welcoming versus feeling hostile is perhaps not the first thing that springs to mind when you're thinking about city planning, but is that something that you think about in your line of work? And then I guess, Tim, is that something that you would think about with uh, route planning, like showing people routes that are more scenic or feel safer? Yes, how people experience places is it's very much part of uh, the work that we do at the TCPA, thinking about how can we encourage people to be more active. Um, and, and the reason that uh, it would be good for people to be more active is it's unbelievably good for health. Uh, it's good for your mental health. It's good for your physical health. It wards off cancer. It does multiple, multiple good things for you. So helping people be a little bit more active every day is um, it pays off for society a lot. So having the confidence that if you set off on your journey walking, that if you feel tired, you can sit down is quite important. Also things like public loos, uh, trees and green spaces, and how places are cared for or not. Um, if a place looks like somebody's taken a bit of care with it, it, it gives everybody confidence that they should be there and they'll be okay. Whereas if it's a bit desolate, run down, full of litter, and doesn't look cared for, people are much less likely to walk through it. I think what you're saying there about giving people confidence is really important. And uh, we, we in, in the role that we play in cities and, and design isn't really, to, we can't really change the environment. We could recommend a place that would be better if it was redone or improved. But what we're there to do is kind of represent what it is or suggest a way or a route or a set of destinations that people don't normally spot. Um, and yet are really good. So a side route that is much more healthy to walk, but more difficult to navigate is kind of where we'd be kind of pointing people down. So that's kind of like our role and our our involvement in improving that. And, and I think your work does give people confidence because um, if, if you set off walking and you're, you're somewhere strange that you don't know, um, it, it's not uncommon to go somewhere and there'll be a signpost pointing you in the right direction and you walk for five minutes and then you'll get to a junction and there's no signpost. There's nothing to tell you where to go next. And that's where you lose confidence about walking. Um, whereas systems like Legible London, you know when you get to the next junction, there'll be another um, graphic or post or something that will tell you where to go. And so it, it is about knowing that not only the route that you can see ahead of you is okay, but that when you get beyond that, you'll still feel confident to get where you're trying to get to without getting lost. Yeah, we, we've got a term for that is that the base uh, requirement of a wayfinding system is to be predictable. Um, so if it's predictable, you can trust it. I think that's the words that we're using and you've got some confidence. And that's one of the methods we use. And um the challenge, I think, Julia, this is interesting, where um, many local authorities come in, the challenge is, is that our country is littered with boundaries between authorities who all do things slightly differently. So there is an issue where you wander over a boundary and now the system changes and therefore that predictability is, is lost to some extent. It's not always the case. Some systems do work across boundaries, etc. But that is, I think, a challenge for then the individual that I think reduces uh, the amount of activity. And also speaking to what you're saying, the challenge of judging distance, 
the rings that you put on the legible London maps, I find very useful. The kind of, this will take you five minutes within the circumference, this will take you 15. It's so much easier to read than a scale where you have to perhaps do the maths yourself. And they're not really there to, for you to go and measure against that. They're just to give you some idea of confidence um, that you can. And we had the big debate when we we're doing it about what it should be. But what about people who do, don't walk very fast? What about people in wheelchairs? What about people who charge walk? Um, and the, the, the view we took was that it's better to put a measure down and then you, you instinctively know you can measure yourself against that. If it says five minutes, I know I can do it in four because I'm a quick walker. And everybody we've spoken to has used it in that way. Um, we often over-prescribe information when you've... Why can't people work... They can often work things out for themselves. And I think we should be engaging with how people understand context more than more than we do. Yeah, and and it gets away from uh, being overly technical as well. Um, like most people in England, I use a bizarre mixture of um, uh, metric and imperial and miles and metres and kilometres and grams and ounces and everything jumbled up but as you say if it says five minutes walk and I think well I can probably do that in five minutes but um, equally if I was with somebody who's a bit slower toddler or elderly person I might think okay let's say 10 minutes but you still roughly know what you're talking about. Well an interesting one we did a, an accessibility map for New York for um, Central Park and they were very interested in the inclines and they had a map of all the inclines they knew all the percentages and we got this map and it had all of the numbers on it of all the percentages and we took it out, talked to people and we realised that we didn't find one person who understood what these percentages mean. Um, so what we came up with was this one's a steep slope and this one's a shallow slope. And that just definition of those two was actually all the people who needed to know that needed to know. So simplifying it and giving you a code to actually shortcut actually is often the way to do it. Julia, you've spoken about how important being active is to people's health. And I know you've written about this concept of social prescribing. Could you go into that a little bit more and what it means to, um, I want to say sort of soft healthcare, but it's not necessarily just going to your GP and getting a prescription for medicine? No. Um, well, when the NHS was set up 70 years ago, the sort of illnesses that people had tended to be infectious illnesses and people tended to be ill for a short time. Maybe they'd go to hospital for a short time and then people died relatively young. Now, partly because of the NHS and better public health and so on, many people live a lot longer, but they were much more likely to have um, sort of long-term chronic conditions like diabetes um, things that um, don't kill you necessarily, you might live with them for years. So the, N the NHS is trying to adapt to that. Um, but what it means is a lot of people who go and see their doctor, what they don't need is a course of pills. They don't need three weeks on a pill and then they'll be better. What they possibly need is to live slightly differently and they might need encouragement and help to do that. So a classic example might be, um, I don't know, an elderly man, his wife dies, uh, he's depressed, he doesn't know how to cook, he starts living off takeaways, um, doesn't go out, doesn't see people. And that's likely to lead to um, perhaps diabetes, uh, perhaps depression. And if that man goes to his doctor, 
Um, there isn't really a tablet that's going to solve that problem. But what the doctor might be able to do is say, well, why don't you go along to this club? Um, there's some other men of your age there and uh, you might make some friends. You might um, do some cooking classes, start to be able to cook food. And that um, might be a much better solution than um, the sort of more traditional medical solutions of, of tablets and hospitals and things. So uh, the NHS is now much more aware that sometimes what patients need is not tablets and healthcare, it's, it's more clubs, social activities, friendships, uh, because having good friends is really good for our health. Um, having someone to speak to is good for your health, but also we, we tend to encourage each other. So you might not feel confident about walking around the park on your own, um, or walking to the park on your own. But if you've got a mate with you who says, oh, come on, you can do it, you know, let's just go along together, that encourages you. So that's what social prescribing is about. It's getting away from really medical stuff, unless that's what somebody needs, and, and helping people um, in, change their lives to live healthier lives with, with different methods, such as clubs and, and that sort of support. And I think it's interesting that you've used examples there of an elderly man or perhaps someone who might feel not confident walking in a space like a park so we probably assume that was someone who wasn't a cisgender white man um tim i'd be really interested to know do you think about with wayfinding projects uh the routes or the ways of getting around for people that might not have the kind of physical or social confidence to get around it really has raised up in many of the recent years, but really it should be designing for those people first from the beginning. Um, they're the people we should design for because if it works for them, it'll work for everybody. Um, I don't see it as, it, it, I really don't think it should be an add-on. It shouldn't be, let's do this as well. It should be, that's how you should design it. Um, and I think the way to do that is to engage and listen and find out. Um, so we've recently done some some focus groups with um, a group of people aged over 60 um, wanting to know how can they be more active. Um, Julia, I love that idea of prescribing activity. And they don't want to cycle. They've done that. Um, many of them were cyclists, but they're too old to do that now. And Because they're worried about falling off. Nobody else's fault, just they might. And they don't want to fall because that means hospital. They don't like that. Um, but what struck us was there are many walking and cycling paths near where we were that they want to use, and they were saying they don't like using them. They don't go on these walking cycling paths because of the speed of the cyclists on the paths. And I, I think I, I, I hadn't thought of that. I'm not of that group yet. I'm getting there. Um <laughs> But I hadn't thought of that as an issue until we talked to them. And then I realised how I don't believe the cyclists are trying to make it difficult for people, but inadvertently, this a lack of ways in which they're interacting is causing that group that we really want active to be less active. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's fixable, actually. For one reason or another, a, a lot of public spaces have, have been designed for basically fit and healthy men um, often designed by fit and healthy men I don't think that's actually the problem because as you've just demonstrated there's nothing to stop anyone 
going and talking to other people, who, people who are different from them, and asking what their experiences are. But perhaps in the past that hasn't happened. Um, and so we've got a lot of public spaces that work for actually a very small minority of the population. Uh, they often don't work if you're pregnant and you need somewhere to sit down. Uh, there aren't enough public loos around, which affects a huge proportion of the population. Um, many older people say they won't go out for a walk because they're worried that there won't be a public loo wherever they're going. Um, equally, if you've got toddlers, if you've got babies, can you get about? Places all around the world have demonstrated that once you start designing for the weakest, the least fit, the smallest, the youngest, the oldest, that suddenly your public spaces are full of people and full of life. Um, if, you, if you get the design right, the people turn up. That idea of the shared pathways that you raised from the focus group, I think that's really interesting that you think there's definitely a solution. And I'd be interested to hear what both of you think those solutions are, because we do have to share our roads and our pathways. But at the moment, it's perhaps not the most harmonious kind of sharing. Is the solution more separate ways? Is it about putting barriers up? Is it about behavioural changes? How can you create places that everyone can use and use them safely at the same time? I think that's a really big question. Um, I think there's been a little bit of a focus in this country on segregation as a way to try and solve that. The problem with segregation is our historical roadways uh, don't allow a lot of that. Um, they're too constricted. Um, the other issue with segregation is it maybe falls back to the conversation we were just having earlier, is that it works best for that determined, experienced cyclist who needs that segregation to, to make sure that they're not um, in conflict with the road user, the vehicle. Um, but even segregated paths have got to cross loads of other paths and need pedestrian crossings. So there's always an area where we need to share. From the work that we've done so far and the observations that we've taken listening to people, I think there's a huge lack of expectation setting of how to behave between car drivers, cyclists and pedestrians. And you could add in scooter drivers. You definitely can add in horse riders to that. Um, and there are some highway code guides that help us there. The recently the, they've republished which one's the import, who's the important hierarchy. I think that was just restating what the highway code says. I don't think that was a change. Um, but it shows you that there's a lack of communication. There's where are the public information films to tell us this is how you do this. Um, we used to have those. I'm dating myself from growing up, but um, we had Charlie and telling us what not to do. Um, but I believe there's a, and that needs to be done in many, in a varied three-dimensional way. But I don't believe there is a, a, a really good code of conduct. For example, definitely a pedestrian and cyclist on that shared path. How do you do that? Who's got right away? What is the speed you should, you should go past? How do you make them aware? There's no agreed call sign. There's no, do you shout? Do you ring a bell? Do you, what do you say when you shout? Um, we've gone and asked lots of people. We've asked that question. What do you do? We've got hundreds of answers. Some people go, oh, I don't ring a bell. I think it's rude to do that. I go, what do you do? We go, well, I try and shout at them and say, I'm coming up on your right. And they turn around and go, what are you talking about? So it's kind of like, everybody's kind of um, awkward. We're all dancing poorly. And there are examples where we dance well, 
So, for example, you've probably all gone down the escalators in London Underground and it says, please stand on the right. Nearly everybody does that. And whoever doesn't often just gets tapped on the shoulder and says, excuse me, it's just you stand on the right. And conflict is avoided. I, I completely agree with what Tim says. It, it, and it's really complicated. Uh, even among cyclists, there's a difference between um, someone commuting to work, trying to go really, really fast, and a five-year-old going to school on their bike. Um, so even just having separated bike routes and paths doesn't necessarily solve the problem. There, there are probably some things we can do in terms of designing infrastructure um, and making sure that there are some routes that are definitely for people cycling very, very fast, and they make that clear. Um, but there will be some places where we all have to share and so we we do need to think about how we do that. And I love the idea of some sort of public information posters or um, adverts. Um, you know, just you mentioned, Tim, um, on the tube that people do stand on the right. But there are little signs saying, please stand on the right. Whereas when we're out in the wild, in the open space of, of the town or city centre, that there's nothing really suggesting how you behave. Maybe something saying, put your litter in this bin, but not much more than that. Um, but one of the other things to think about is the way that the design of a space encourages or discourages different types of behaviour. And if somewhere is designed with care and it's looked after and um, it's um, a place that we might feel proud of, I think we behave slightly differently from somewhere that's perhaps a bit fortified and with horrible lighting and barbed wire and things like that, where it feels a bit more aggressive. So designers are brilliant at giving us sort of unspoken cues and signals about what sort of space we're in. Um, yes, we probably do need a conversation about this and we do need some public information signs. Um, and, and we also need um, to allow designers to create spaces that will suggest to us how we might behave in them. And you mentioned the highway code getting republished there, Tim. I think it's um, good to, to state who actually has priority because not many people know. It is pedestrians. Absolutely. It's pedestrians first, then cyclists, then cars. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it's horses first. And then cars like, are at the bottom I'm going to go and check. I'm going to go and check. <laughs> I should know that, shouldn't I? <laughs> you were talking there, Julia, about places looking welcoming. I think one of the things that is difficult about cities here nowadays is that there is this sense of hostile architecture. You're talking about seating. There are so few places to sit, but they tend to get taken out because people think that it'll encourage loitering or antisocial behaviour or, God forbid, a homeless person might sit down there. So they make seats uncomfortable, but that also means that someone will be less able to sit down there or won't find anywhere to sit at all. Um, Similarly, the kind of these sound devices that some places put up to discourage younger people from gathering there. How, I mean, how can that be combated? Is that something that can happen at a local planning level? Or does that sort of thing, is that insisted upon by certain businesses and there's nothing you can do about it? Well, it depends. Um, In the past, most public space was owned by the council and they were able to have some influence over it. 
increasingly in cities there are public spaces that are owned by private companies and that's very different and um, they tend to look very spick and span and beautiful because they have the money to maintain them well but they're not necessarily welcoming places um, if you don't have money to spend so um, they are a, a separate and quite difficult category I think but generally speaking most public spaces are um, uh, managed by the local council and there are things that the council can do Lots of councils are realising that uh, their populations aren't as healthy as they could be and want to make a real effort to create healthier places. Um, and, and in this country, there is a big problem with people being off sick. We've got two and a half million people out of work due to long-term sickness. And economists are starting to realise that one of the reasons that um, the UK has quite a particularly low productivity is because a lot of people aren't well and that either they're not working or when they are working they're not working at full capacity because they're ill. So the link between keeping people healthy and having a thriving economy is, is much more recognised than it was and some councils are now prioritising healthy placemaking. And if they put that into their local council plan, that they want to make sure that they create places where it's easy for everybody to be healthy, then that can filter down through all the different things they do, including planning. And um, they can get that into their local plan, which shapes all of the development that will take place in that place. So, for instance, if a developer's um, putting in a planning application, the council can then assess it and say, well, does it meet our criteria for healthy buildings and healthy places? So there are things that councils can do. Um, and it's starting to be recognised that enabling people to be active in their day-to-day -day lives is a huge public health issue. And it's affecting the NHS. And um, at the moment, it costs about a billion a year that the amount of physical inactivity that people aren't being active costs the NHS about a billion a year. So it's far cheaper to invest in prevention and invest in helping people stay healthy and active rather than waiting till they get very ill and then expecting the NHS to treat them. Can I ask a question, Julia? That, that kind of suggests that this goes all the way to the top of government because the NHS budget is comes directly from government and local authorities and active travel comes down a different tree line and that you know yes we're making our place active but they're not it's the NHS that might see the benefit of that um are you can you help me understand how how does government try and connect those two together I think it's fair to say it doesn't do it very well but it is starting to change so the government does ha now have targets around active travel and getting more people walking and those are really good but it also ties in with climate change uh, so the government's published a transport decarbonisation programme which is to reduce the impact of transport on the amount of carbon that's produced and if you follow all the evidence you end up re recognising that people need to walk a bit more and cycle a bit more um, so at the moment, um, uh, a huge number of uh, journeys, about half the journeys, I think, in, in most towns and cities are actually very short journeys. So this isn't about saying people must never, ever drive. It's about saying, well, most of the people who are driving for very short journeys probably could walk or cycle. Obviously, some people couldn't. There might be very good reasons why somebody needs to drive. But the vast majority of those short journeys could be done by active travel 
that would reduce the carbon emissions, it would help create a healthier population and it would reduce air pollution, which is now recognised to be far more lethal than had been acknowledged even a few years ago. It also helps connect communities. You you learn more about your local area, you get to see other people, you explore the neighbouring area. Um, And I think that's another factor. There isn't really a a downside to doing this. No. And at the TCPA, we're we're promoting the idea of 20-minute neighbourhoods. And the idea is that um, uh, places should have most of the things that most people need most days nearby. Because you're only going to walk and cycle if the thing you want to get to isn't very far away. So if the school's just down the road or uh, the shop or the park is just down the road, then you will walk and cycle. But if it's miles and miles away, of course you won't. And you know what I see as a pattern here is um, this is all, this can all be thought through. It's kind of, I don't think, I don't think anybody in the the decision-making places are disagreeing with this if we if they th- sit and think about it i think it's not been thought about it's not been presented as a case uh, in the right way or um because i can see it on a micro scale as well as the way you've described it on a macro scale um the way in which a transport budget will be spent on a new roundabout layout f- for a reason i do not know because the roundabout seemed fine um, but yeah, I know that that roundabout probably cost about a million pounds. And I'm like, what could we do in terms of creating a walking route with a million pounds in that area? Huge amount. And I'm like, that's just a matter of where the council has seen its, its priorities need to go. Um, and I believe the people in the council are doing the best job based on what those priorities are. Um, you know, I see people doing really good work and really, really care about what they're doing. But if it's, if it's not for the right end, we've not set the right objective, it's it's not going to deliver on what UK PLC needs. No. Which is, as you talked, I think that was fascinating because I think this actually isn't, you could change this in five years. If you have a look and see what's happened in Paris, it has been about five years. They've, they've really transformed the city into one where walking and cycling are a pleasure. And I th- there are two things here. All the evidence points in the direction of investing in walking and cycling. Uh, whether it's economic evidence, health evidence, environmental evidence, climate, whatever, all the evidence says do that. Uh, The politics is trickier than the evidence, though. It's not just about evidence. And that's where we tend to get a bit stuck. Um, But it it is about shifting the investment to follow the evidence. And I was looking into how much we spend on roads. And the best figure I could find was that Um, The UK spends about £11 billion a year on roads. Um, And uh, in terms of how much we spend on active travel, walking and cycling, it was about £6.6 over 10 years. So walking and cycling is really sort of getting the crumbs from the table. So even if the spending was shifted by 20%, then that would be a huge increase in the budget for making pavements nice and flat and wide, for having benches, for having public loos, for having better signage and wayfinding. So it could be done. Uh, but the politics is tricky because uh, because we have short-term political cycles and the healthy population that might 
arise from this wouldn't be healthy for the next few years. And meanwhile, there'll be an election and uh, there'll be people who drive cars making a big fuss. I mean, I think there are ways of having things that don't change with every government change. I'd be interested to hear more about what you've seen with Paris, because as I understand it, they've had a mayor who has been really committed to regreening the city, to creating a healthy capital. Yes. Uh, she's been really good at um, communicating a fantastic vision of what Paris could be like if it wasn't full of traffic jams. And you need those visionary politicians to say things could be so much better. And I think we're lacking that um, a bit in uh, the UK at the moment. And not only could she set that vision, as mayor of Paris, she has a much bigger budget and more powers than... um, the mayors that we have in England. Uh, We live in a very centralised country and it's actually very difficult for local mayors to do as much as they might want to. So in Paris, the mayor has um, a lot of power to make changes. She's given each little community neighbourhood area money to spend. So she said to them, okay, you know, what's in your area? What's missing in your area? This idea of having a, a... 20-minute neighbourhood, or in Paris, it's the 15-minute neighbourhood. And she'll say, well, what, what do you need? And people say, well, you know, we really don't like this, it's not working for us, or we need one of those. And they get a budget to make that happen. And the other thing that she's been able to do is make sure that it works for everybody. So lots of people in Paris live in small flats, they don't have gardens, they don't have spaces to go outside. And she's done fantastic things like uh, there was a dreary little road along the edge of the River Seine. I think it was a sort of some sort of access road. It was just a bit of tarmac. And she turned it into a beach. So there's sunbeds, there's palm trees, there's water spray, there's cafes. So if you live in a little flat high up in one of those lovely blocks in Paris, but you have no outdoor space, you can go down there, you can lie on the sun lounger, watch the water, speak to your friends, watch the kids playing. So what she's done by taking that road away is she's provided something that benefits everybody. And so it's not just about taking something away, it's about giving something back that's even better. And that's the narrative that I think we need to have here. Because when you do create places that are um, walkable, where you bump into people, where you can sit down and have a chat, people love them. So there's always a fear of change. And if you just say to people, we're going to take this car parking space away and we're going to stop you doing that and you you mustn't do this, it's a terribly negative message. Whereas what um, Mayor Anne Hildago has been able to provide is this really positive vision for the future. So I suppose it's not just about changing people's behaviour in terms of getting them to walk more or cycle more and share better, but also it's about trying to change people's perspective that driving less or doing less short journeys isn't a loss. Yeah, it's a bit carrot and stick though, isn't it? So all all stick and what you can't do or having charges works to a point, um, but creates um, difficulties. And where are the carrots? Where are the positive moves? I, I it's, and that's about communication. So some of the work that we're doing on cycling is not saying you can't cycle here but or don't go on red. It's more like, please only go on green. It's just changing the language. Like the other one that's always got me is, um, please don't attack our staff in the A&E. I'm like, whoever is going to attack the staff is never going to read that. So 
it's something going to be me, and I have no intention of attacking anybody who reads it and now feels nervous and um, and bothered, and the whole therefore the whole room does, and therefore the mood is all heightened, and that is not that's the opposite of what you want to actually have. So, uh, back to your um, uh, antisocial behaviour point. I just think it's a shame if we can't put amenities in because that's what we're worried about. I think you've got to tackle antisocial behaviour with different methods, not by not putting in amenities for people who could benefit from them. It's if you do that, where do you stop? Basically, let's just not have anywhere anybody could sit or any public toilets. And and I think your point, Julia, is the more we care for those environments, the harder it is, the less that happens. We found very little vandalism of Legible London. Um, and because it's it's well, it's tough, but it's well designed, it's considered, it's thoughtful, people tend not to, some of them they use a few stickers on it to advertise things. But again, what we found is that as long as you've got a team coming and cleaning them off, people give up trying to sticker them. and But when they don't get cleaned, they get worse, they fall into disrepute, not managed, and then they become part of this. Um, it's a broken part of the city. So I think maintenance, I think you touched on that. How do you maintain the quality and keep it clean and keep it up to date is is probably really important. Hugely important. And it, I think it's something we struggle with in this country. I think there's sort of uh, uh, some mentality that isn't shared by other countries so what we're quite good at doing is creating a brand new something brand new building brand new park and we'll have the budget for building it but there's usually not enough budget for looking after it and that's been a consistent problem with public parks that uh, there's never enough money to look after them and so it's just so important because once things start to unravel and go wrong and get dirty and run down the whole nature of the place changes people's attitudes change if people are proud of a place i think they're much less likely to um trash it and and the people who if people do damage it they'll be really ostracized uh but once something's run down and horrible then nobody cares anyway and i think to your point about antisocial behavior i mean what is antisocial behavior if it's just young people getting to enjoy a public space there should be room where, for them where else as do well. they go yeah well, exactly. exactly all of our youth clubs have been closed down there's less um you know sports facilities for them to use there's um an interesting project called flickrum which is dedicated to trying to create public spaces that young girls and young women can use because mm. i think they use public space 80% less after the age of eight because mm. they don't feel confident in public spaces. They don't feel it's well mm. lit. There's not places to kind of sit and see without being seen. Or um, I think a lot of budget goes to the kind of uh, mixed use sports courts. And I know that I walk home through like basketball courts and it's fun to see them being used, but it's only ever boys or young men using them. So I think there's also that. Again, it's going back to what you were saying, Julia, about who is getting to use the spaces. And who is asked about what they want in those spaces. Uh, It's no good just asking the people who are already there, what do you like, because they're already there. You have to ask the people who aren't there, what what would you like, what would make you use that park or or that square or that space? Um, And uh, unless we do that, we're we're going to continue investing in the people who, who already have what they want and not investing in the people who perhaps needed a bit more. 
And back to that point we made about the speed cyclists and putting elder walkers off. Um, there's um, there's a, been a lot of there's a very vocal cycling community that's made some really good strides, um, and I don't think at the detriment of wanting to be at the detriment of pedestrians. But that isn't necessarily always the impact. And how do we look after these people who don't have a loud voice? I I'm, I think is something that as a society we should be caring for. And I think that goes back to as well what you were saying about air pollution and. Now that we appreciate that it's such a killer, we've had air pollution listed on the death certificate of a child for the first time. And that was because her mother has been lobbying for that. But we also know that air pollution doesn't affect everyone equally. It, you're more likely to be exposed to it if you're living in a less kind of economically strong part of the city. We also know that those particulates hit children so much worse because they're lower to the ground like if you're in a pram you're in the absolute worst possible position to get a face full of fumes i've got a an observation here about what might be missing or a way of tackling this is everything we've talked about is kind of invisible air pollution is invisible lack of activity is invisible um the fact that it's not there (laughs) means you don't see it um and i've always been interested as a designer that how can we make some of these factors more visible because then when what i've noticed with people is that when it's obvious and in front of them they will respond and do something about that and i think one of the problems we've got with climate change is for years it's not been we've been told it's going to get worse i feel we can all agree we're starting to see more dramatic weather um events so we're starting to realise it's becoming a bit more visible. And it's kind of human nature to only respond when it's actually right in front of us, if you look historically. So so I'm as a designer, I'm always thinking, how can I help make it a bit more visible as an issue? Um, like with air quality, I did some work on how can we produce live maps of what's the air quality so that you can look at that and go, oh, blimey, I didn't realise this invisible... Um, uh, uh, atmosphere out there um, and it's the same with active travel if there's a way of getting that data um, more out there more more um, easy to understand really quickly I think it would help I, th- I think you're absolutely right and when we work with councils uh, at the TCPA we often we're often invited in by the public health team um, to talk to the planners and transport planners and other people there and often what we do is we ask the public health team for their data about public health, but but to show it on a map. And they've got all this data in the public health teams. They've got fantastic data and fantastic maps. But the planners don't often see that data and the councillors don't often see that data. But if you show a map of the area, there in every place in the country, there'll be some parts of that council area where um, people are quite healthy, air pollution's quite low, they're probably quite well off, they've got some nice parks. There'll be other parts on that map where everything is much more negative. People are much less healthy, there's probably really high air pollution, probably not much green space. And you can see where the problems are concentrated. And once you see it on a map, people say, oh yes, yeah, of course, that makes sense. But then you can say, well, okay, As this area changes and develops, how are you going to make sure that the benefits go to those places where things are worse at the moment? Uh, 
And then you can start to have a conversation. I say, well, you know, we've got this big development coming in and um, it, it's going to go there. But what could we do to benefit that area there? And you can start having those conversations. So putting things on maps is brilliant because as soon as people see it, then you can start having that conversation. And those are going to have the biggest impact. Yes. The, the areas that are the lowest are going to get the, the benefit yes. quicker. Yes. If you're trying to get a healthier population, you need to focus on the people with the worst health. Because if you've got somebody who's already really healthy and you make them 1% healthier, 5% healthier, it doesn't make much difference to them or to the NHS. But if you've got somebody who's really unhealthy and you can make them 5 or 10% healthier, that can have a big impact on their life, can really improve their life, and they'll need the NHS less. So we need to focus on the people and the places where health is worst. And one of the things I've learned from working alongside people in public health over the years is that every place is different and every community is different. And places are really complicated. They're systems of systems. And if you tinker with one thing, you can have really unexpected results somewhere else. So if you're trying to change a place, much better to work with the people who are there to try things out. And if it doesn't work, change it, to listen to people, um, to go through an iterative process. And that means that you have to say that sometimes if it doesn't work, that's fine. That's part of the process. But that can be quite difficult in, in councils, which are democracies, because there's always you know a local paper saying, you spent £3,000 on this thing and now you've scrapped it. It didn't work, you failed. And we've got to get over that and, and help people understand that trying things out is fine. And I think some of the controversies around low traffic neighbourhoods um, are a little bit about you did this and it didn't work, you failed. Whereas there, there have been low traffic neighbourhoods for years and years and years and nobody bats an eyelid. And, you know, some of the ones that were put in recently, uh, there's one where I lived and, and it was pretty good, but there was one bit that was really, really annoying and everyone was very cross about it. Well, the council moved it. They left the rest of it and everybody's fine with it now. And, it, and we have to be able to allow councils in particular to try things out and not see that if they have to change it in a year's time, not tell them that they failed, but say, great, you're learning. But you, that is an example of being agile. But councils don't normally behave in an agile way. They're not, they're, not, they're not brought up that way. They're not designed that way. And I get that. And I don't think there's anything they're doing wrong. But some of these things are much better implemented in an agile way. In other words, we're going to put this in for a trial and we're going to really listen to the reactions to that trial. The, the problem is, realistically, many councils can't do that. And when we were researching our guide to creating 20-minute neighbourhoods, we spoke to the council in Paris and in Melbourne, Australia, and in Portland, Oregon, to find out how, what they'd done and, and what we could learn from them. And it was so obvious that they, the resources they had were much greater than councils in this country. Um, they were working much more closely with their communities. They were involving people in the process much more. And um, it's just very, very difficult to do that in the situation we're in with councils really struggling at the moment. We do a lot of work in the US and we do work with a lot of mayors. Um, the power a mayor has in the US is they really run that city. And they live and die by the success of what they say. They, they determine the local taxes. Uh, we worked in Cleveland and it, it, it wanted to encourage business tourism. So it raised, I'm not sure how much, a dollar income tax on the local taxes 
to, and it raised a billion dollars to create a huge, huge conference center and loads of facilities. It changed the planning laws to allow loads of new hotels to come up. And so it built, it basically went, well, we're, we've got to compete with other cities. We're going to do something about this. And I, I found it kind of like the, the alternative is Detroit, where the, the council completely ran out of money and had to fire police police people and, and teachers and turn off the lights. Uh, and the government, federal government, wasn't there to help them. So you're a little bit on your own. But that sense of, again, r- responsibility for a leader of a city, I think is, is democracy and is actually quite healthy, obviously with those downsides, if you could manage them. But I think we're way too centralised and having to follow centralised government um, kind of guides where they're actually not feeling the pain of what what the issues are. Yeah, I th- I'd agree. And 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 every you know, communities want different things. And and that, again, with our twenty minute neighbourhood work, it's not about imposing something on every community. It's about going to places and saying, it, it, "Does your neighbourhood work for you? And if not, what do you need?" And I think that goes back to the political issue because. If you speak to architects who were working before Thatcher crashed the London councils, that's what they had the power to do. And architects, um, I know the Matrix, the Feminist Architecture Collective, there were funds there for them to go and speak to communities that they were designing for and to say, what do you need from this community centre? What do you need from this woman's refuge? What do you need even from this bank? They were they were the funds there for them to go and speak to people and find out what they needed. But we have lost that. And the current system has, you know, become very convoluted and difficult. And the councils don't have the independence to do that. No, there's a real risk that... Um, but if you starve something of, of funds, then it doesn't work very well. And then it's easy to turn around and say, well, that's a load of rubbish. It doesn't work very well. And there, there's a risk with that. If, if we want to have really good places and, and a healthy population, we need to invest in it. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean we need more money. We just need to think more carefully about how we spend the money we've got, I think. I think we've come to a quite serious and... Uh, we've solved some problems poli- of the world. And we have. I, if everyone just listened to us and put this podcast into action, everything would be fixed. Tim and Julia, thank you so much. I just wanted to ask, what is there something that you can go out and do today that will lead to a healthier lifestyle or a healthier city? Just something small. I think we need to make places a bit more fun. Um, and that can be really small things. That can be um, uh, you know, mosaics and images. and just, just, you know, places don't have to be all serious. So there can be interesting little details that make you smile we need more of those i'm going to go on a different tack and just say you know that journey that you always do that you don't think about just go a different way and go and experience something differently great thank you both so much thank you thank you you've been listening to a disegno podcast for more podcasts visit disegnojournal.com This podcast was hosted and edited by Desenio. The panel was selected by Applied Wayfinding and Cameron PR. Editing was by Evie Hall and Lara Chapman and hosting by me, India Block.